And now it is my uh, pleasure to introduce our guest preacher this morning, Mr. Stephen Hollidge, uh, who is a long-term Presbytery friend of Pastor Jack. Um, he has filled the pulpit here at GPC before. Um, he's also a long-time long ruling elder at one of our sister churches in Bowie, Maryland. Um, Steve holds a degree from Re Reformed Theological Seminary and is licensed to preach in Potomac Presbytery. So we look forward to hearing him preach from the Word this morning. Come on up, Steve. Welcome. Well, as uh, Jordan said, I'm a, a longtime friend of Jack Lash and uh, Mary Ann, and uh, it kind of depends on how you define friend. Um, when our, my home church, I've been a founding member of our home church for about a 30-something year of being an uh, individual congregation, I was nominated to be a deacon. And Jack and another gentleman interviewed me, and I failed. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I've always respected Jack for that. You know, he was, he was guarding the officers. And, uh, uh, you know, in some ways you could think I'd be discouraged by that. But that really endeared me to Jack because he was faithful. He was faithful in this duty. And uh, in God's providence, I think I was never really called to be a deacon. I was called to be a, a ruling elder. And maybe I'll be called to be a teaching elder. I'm not sure. I, uh, I'm considering that uh, for a church in Kentucky right now. But it is a joy to be here. I've been here before. I was here... I guess back in the 80s or 90s, uh, when we'd have Presbytery, uh, different churches, and we've had it here before many years ago. So it's great to be back with you, which is sad that Jack and Marianne aren't here. Uh, for our viewers on uh, live stream, I just want to encourage you, as you're able, uh, to come out here and worship with the brothers and sisters here at Gainesville. Uh, as Jordan had made it a point twice, I think, in his speaking so far, the Spirit of God is not limited uh, by locality. Uh, that you can be ministered to by the word of God uh, fully while you're at home. But there's a blessing in being together with the people of God that, that's missed when you're, when you're away. We recently had this one member who's been away for almost a year or two and came. And what a delight it was to have her back. And so I just encourage you to come here and to worship in person with the brothers and sisters here at Gainesville. With that, let me pray for our time in the word. Our Heavenly Father... Uh, we thank you that you are our Father in Christ now. Uh, we have access to the throne of grace at all times, 24-7. Father, you are the only one, along with your Son and the Holy Spirit, who knows what's going on in our hearts. You know our fears. You know our concerns. You know our sins. You know our joys. And so I ask that you would be merciful to us today, Father, that you would give us exactly what we need. It is your word, and yet you know how to direct it to our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might be conformed more into the image of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please turn to 2 Corinthians. And um, I'm going to read two passages from 2 Corinthians, our our. Uh, our, our sermon text comes from 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17, but I also want to read uh, chapter 4, 1 to 18, because I think it gives us uh, a better filling out of what Paul's ministry was like, his heart in this ministry. Uh, in this letter, Paul begins by opening his heart about the difficulties of his ministry, which is a great blessing. I think sometimes we think ministry is easy, and then things get hard, and it's like, wow, this is difficult. It's like, oh yeah, it was the same for Paul. 
And then he goes on to discuss a disciplined matter from a former letter. And then we, we come to these, these words here in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of, the, of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And then over to chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, the, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will, raise, will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as the grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Over the last couple of years, I've been drawn more and more to this letter. It is a very uh, tender and open letter of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He shares very deeply and honestly about what it's been like for him to be in ministry. 
And in the text today that we have in verses 14 to 17, we, we see a picture of a faithful godly ministry, a faithful godly ministry. And I'd like for us to consider this in four, in, in, I'm sorry, in three points. The first would be the power of ministry, the power of ministry. Second, the effects of ministry, the effects of ministry. And then finally, the method of ministry, the method of ministry. So first, the power of ministry, we see this in in verse uh, 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Always leads us in triumphal procession. That the ministry of the church in Christ is triumphant. It is triumphant, but for a special reason. Because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who leads them, and who leads us always leads us in triumphal procession. I don't think we always feel like that, do we? We feel like, who are we? We're, 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 we're small in, in numbers as far as the country. We're small in numbers. Go across the board, we're weak. And yet he says we are led in triumphal procession. And I think it's, it's helpful for us to pause and think about that. And I think sometimes, in some, some um, professing Christians think that uh, the triumphal procession means triumphalism. That we're going to take over uh, certain organizations and we're going to have outward worldly power. And we're going to bring in the kingdom. And that's not what Paul says at all. He says it by word and he shows it by his deeds. That is not triumphal procession. Often, triumphal procession is the quiet, slow, steady progress of the Lord Jesus Christ in your your heart and my heart. That is the Lordship of Christ, which ought to be there, is being established more and more by the means of grace. This is really, you could argue, the most glorious work of the church, is that men and women and children are conformed to the image of Christ by the the regular means of grace, by the preaching of the word and by the Lord's Supper and prayer. That, That people who were enemies of God are now made children of God. Initially made children of God at regeneration when God takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That's called definitive sanctification. But as time goes on, he works continuously, as we call him, every Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, before the Word of God. And as our consciences are are brought before the Word of God, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and shows us Christ and leads us in new obedience and enables us to see the beauty of holiness. That is triumphal procession. And there's a temptation because we live in a world that is so much about outward power. Outward power. And yet we don't see any of this in the Apostle Paul. When Paul was persecuting the church, there was an illustration of worldly power. He seemed to me to be an A-type personality. But as an enemy of the church... He was there when Stephen was stoned to death. 
He was in agreement. That's what his, that's what his, his love was. That was his desire. He, he thought he was doing the right thing, but he did so blindly. But God had other plans for him. Plans that he did not know about until later. We see his conversion in Acts 9. What, a, what an incredibly powerful conversion. Unlike that of Lydia in Acts 16, where it's like, God, God opens her heart to the truths. Now, I imagine before Lydia was different than Paul was before he was converted. With Paul, it seems like a spiritual sledgehammer. If you, if you read his conversion, what an what a incredible turnaround. This man who was vehemently opposed to Christ and his church becomes this great apostle who, who in Christ-like fashion, lays down his life for the church. Paul's life was fairly easy as he persecuted the church. If he was to turn around and show you his back, it would look like most of our backs, kind of normal. But once he started to serve Christ and endured suffering for the sake of Christ, if he turned around, you might turn your eyes away. It would be so horrifying. As he endured 40 lashes minus one, or stoned and left for dead, it's hard to imagine what he even looked like uh, in terms of all of the things he endured for the sake of Christ. But he kept going, he kept going. Even when he was left for dead, he gets up and he goes back. He keeps moving. That is the power of the gospel in the Christian. It's not a natural power. A lot of people endure a lot of things for worldly gain. But this power that was at work in Paul was a supernatural power. It was the spirit of Christ in him. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul seemed like a very competent Pharisee before his conversion. He would have been on Pharisee today if there was such a magazine back then. He would have been voted Pharisee of the year. But God had other plans for him. And so as Paul was transformed by Christ, he does something that seems so strange and unusual. He starts to boast in his weakness. He starts to boast in his weakness. We see this later on in the letter. Now, if you're going for a new job and you had to put a resume together, you probably wouldn't put on there all your failures or all your weaknesses. It would seem foolish, and it probably is. You want to be honest. You should be honest with yourself and with your employer about your strengths and weaknesses. That's a good thing. The truth is always good. But to think that Paul would rejoice in his weaknesses, he would be content with his weaknesses, is a very unnatural mindset and way of living. And yet that's what he tells us at the end of his letter. And he would go on in his ministry, in his triumphal ministry in this way, in weakness, not in human strength, not in human wisdom, but in the strength that's in Christ, in the wisdom that's in Christ. Is he faithfully and diligently and perseveringly preached the gospel against all types of opposition? All types of op opposition. And so I think we, we need to be encouraged by these words and instructed by these words because we, we tend to be like the world. We think we got to have this and we got to have that. And if we don't do that, we're not going to be uh, noticed. And yet it's the simple wonderful, glorious gospel 
That God has sent his, world, his Son into the world to bear our sins. To be the only hope of salvation for mankind in a fallen world. And they'll one day give an account to the living God. That is the triumphal procession. And as you see Paul's life, as you, if you have a chance to read through the book of 2 Corinthians or any of his letters, you see that he's following in his Lord's footsteps. Our Lord suffered on our behalf, as we've already seen through song and words and confessions. He did what we could not do. I used to high jump. You have to use your imagination. But when I was in junior high, I used to high jump. And I was decent for that junior high. I, I, I wasn't very good once I got to high school and wasn't even close for college. But imagine, and, and this is true, you know, the, the, Washington, the Washington Monument, it's over 500 foot. And let's say you put a bar at the 500 foot mark and say, your salvation depends on you high jumping over that bar. That is really a very clear illustration of what Christ has done for us. We had no hope of providing an impeccable righteousness because we, like Adam, were fallen. And as we see before the flood, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are evil. But God, but God who is rich in mercy sends his son whose mission was to please the Father at every moment of his life. No sinful deeds, no sinful words, no sinful thoughts, and even more so, no sinful inclinations. No sinful inclinations. We can't even think about it. It's hard to imagine. I've shared this twice before, once in my home church. I just celebrated my 40th wedding anniversary. I'm very blessed, and it was by the grace of God. I love my wife proactively more than I ever have. And yet I find myself thinking I have a lustful thought. And it's like, <sighs> it's the remaining corruption of my heart, even as a child of God. And I think this is so important for us to understand. I, I've seen so many older Christians who don't get this. They don't understand what Christ has done for them, what he is doing for them, and what he will do for them. When you come to Christ and you come to believe in him, you are clothed in his righteousness. You are clothed in his impeccable righteousness. I've come to love that word impeccable more and more. No spot or blemish like the lambs that were offered in the sacrifices. And you're clothed with that, and God sees you with that. But at the same time of his regenerating you and justifying you, he begins to sanctify you. And those are absolutely tied together. Paul will tell us in another place. And so as we come every Lord's Day, we should not be surprised if we're convicted of sin. We're called unto holiness, unto Christ-likeness. And so often people get discouraged. It's like, oh, I see these sins. I see these sins. It's like, that is normal for a child of God. It's normal. Now, it's not to be stayed in that, that state. We're called to repentance. And repentance is a glorious gift. 
to leave off the ways of corruption and to walk in the new ways. And see, this is the, the triumphal procession. It's very quiet often. It's very quiet. There's times of revival where it's very public and national. But the scripture calls us not to despise the day of small things and they're glorious small things. To be convicted of your sin is no small benefit. To be delivered from some sin, from some corruption, is no small thing. When I go on trips, I almost never let anybody in my family drive. <laughs> I have an iron grip on the steering wheel, basically. And only for certain causes, like I'm really super tired or I'm sick, that's the only reason I'll let it up. But I thought, that's what, that's what the fall has done. I have this iron grip on sin, and as I'm made new in Christ, the grip starts to release... And it starts to release in Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Week by week, the grip becomes, becomes undone. And I no longer love those sins. I did things as a young Christian. I've been a Christian for 47 years. In my first or second year, I did things then that I would be embarrassed to do today. They were foolish. They were foolish. They were foolish. In my past, I used to do an Elvis Presley imitation. I haven't done it in a while. And I have a CD. When we're on family trips. We have an Elvis CD. And um, I have to skip over songs. I can't sing them with a good conscience. I can't think about them with a good conscience. Because they're contrary to God's law. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that Christ has ruined me for sin. It's no longer my delight. But even for the believer, I think there's a great confusion that even the believer will be convicted. This is his good work of sanctification. Going deeper and deeper and deeper. Not just the actions, not just the words, not just the thoughts, but even the affections. The affections changed by the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing work. It's not valued in the world. But it's highly valued by God. And that's what he does by his spirit. That's why the means of grace are so, so important. I'll get back to this in the second point. But I want us to understand what the triumphal procession is. Is that as Paul was suffering for the gospel. As he was bearing persecution. And the gospel went out. And people were coming to Christ. And their lives were changed for all eternity. That's no small gift. And so he leads us in triumphal procession in that way and so this is the ministry of Gainesville as you seek to faithfully follow Christ whether you're large or small in number Christ will have the victory because you're being faithful to him and you're using his means and not some other means Christ cannot but be victorious where he's pleased to be victorious no one over, overcomes him nobody defeats him He's already overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so as you go forth week by week, it is a, it's a great privilege and benefit to be here on the Lord's Day. It's a great privilege and benefit. The other thing I would say at this point, and I'll move on to the next one, is 
I, I had the opportunity to listen to an 18 uh, lecture series by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was probably considered the greatest preacher of the 1900s, I would say it was. Um, very intelligent man. I think he was on course to be the doctor for the Queen, Queen of England. But God had other plans for him too. And he's very much, he's very, uh, much like Sherlock Holmes. He's very into details and it, it's really a wonderful thing. But at one time, during these lectures, he was lecturing to seminary students at Westminster Theological Seminary. I think it was 1969. And he says, do you expect anything to happen when you go to preach on the Lord's Day? And he wasn't just talking to members. He's talking to preachers. He says, do you expect anything to happen? It's like, wow, that's pretty convicting. <laughs> Not because of the preacher, because of Christ and the means of grace. That you leave with joy when you came in with sorrow. You, you came in with a measure of corruption and God is, has set you free and you walk in newness of life. It's, I've, I've been convicted. I'm trying to keep repenting. I should expect something to happen when I come here on the Lord's Day. I should expect something to happen when I hear the word preached. I should expect something to happen when I take the Lord's Supper. This wonderful, tangible gift that Christ has given to us in a very intimate way that we taste and drink things that point to him and him alone. As he reminds us, as you go through this past, you've gone through this past week, as we heard the prayer requests and your sorrowful things, maybe even sin, he says, I've died for your sins. Your sins were forgiven in me. And he says, this is not the end either. This is not all there is. You do this until I come again. And he lifts our head. He points us forward. It's all him doing this. It's his plan. It's the plan of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it will not be thwarted. He will come back one day. And, and we all need to be thinking that way. We need to be thinking about the second coming of Christ. There's no reason that he might not come before we leave this worship service. But how that would change our thinking if you've ever been on a vacation, you, I'm sure you, you get lighter as you get towards the, you get closer to the vacation. It even works like, oh, I don't care. I'm going on vacation. You know, you feel your spirit lifted. Our Lord is going to return. And when he returns, we want to have a good, we want to, we want to be good stewards of what he's given us. Everyone in Christ has a gift. I don't know what that is, but God does. And he gives it to you. Not me, not Jack, not the session, not the PCA. <laughs> It's from the Lord to glorify him and to use for his glory and for the benefit of his people in love. It's a glorious, glorious calling. And we, we need to figure out what is the Lord calling me to? What does he gifted me with? I'm going to say something that's pretty obvious. And I, I admit I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I know I'll never be called to be, be a mother. Now, it seems pretty obvious, but sometimes the obvious escapes us. I don't say that in a frivolous or silly way, really. I mean, that's, I know that, that that line of calling is not mine. Now, from there on, I have to <laughs> discern what, what other things I'm not supposed to do. But I think it's so important. You know, particularly in our time where people are so confused. The darkness is so dark again, it seems like. So that's the power of the ministry through the means of grace, the regular means of grace, which seemed, 
seem so small to the world are so powerful to God. One more illustration, if you'll bear with me, and I'll, I'll speed up. I actually preached at Warrington for six months last year. I had a glorious time being over there. I was at Heritage Presbyterian Church. And uh, my wife and I went out to this restaurant, and I was very hungry. It was hot. And on our table, before the waitress came, was this thing that looked like a mint. And I was thinking, man, I might eat that. I'm just hungry. So I didn't, and the waitress came and took our order. She says, oh, by the way, that little thing there, that is an expandable towelette. You drop it in water, and it will expand. Now, in all seriousness, that is what the Word of God is like. One verse, one verse can sustain you all day because it's the Word of God. It was made for you, for your nourishment as a Christian. The words of the world are more like cotton candy, which promises so much on this big stick, and your saliva touches it, it shrivels up to nothing, a little ball of sugar. I knew a guy that used to work at the old Capital Center. That was their highest profit margin item. <laughs> you can spin sugar up into all this big thing, and it has nothing in the end. But that's the total opposite of the Word of God. Okay, enough on point one, sorry. Point two, the effects of ministry. And this, is, this, is, this has been uh, tied to the title particularly. Verses 2, 15 to uh, 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And uh, the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? This verse really struck me. I'm thinking, how can this be? How can this be? The gospel, this one true faithful gospel, to one group smells like death. To another group, it is, smells like life. Now, when I was six years old, and I had a two-year-old sister, a one-year-old sister, and a five-month-old brother, my mother passed. And my dad had been in the military. This is 1963, a month before President Kennedy was assassinated. And my mother was buried at Arlington Cemetery. So since 1963, I've been visiting Arlington Cemetery. And by her gravesite, there is a magnolia tree. And I think I have never smelt a magnolia blossom until like a year or two ago. And it was one of the most glorious aromas I've ever had. It is incredibly beautiful. And I think about that as life. I think about that's the aroma of life. I'm sure they make perfumes that smell like that. But then there's another thing that happened to me about five years ago. I have two daughters that live in the hood, as they say, uh, in Memphis. And uh, I was moving one of my daughters there. And it's hot. It was like July. We're going to Memphis. It's steamy. And I have this van. And I'm driving the van. All of a sudden, this water splashes up on my van and it was the worst thing I'd ever smelt it was like rotted flesh and it was hot and so it made it even worse so I drive off I think the next exit this was not wise I go Ugh! it was horrible I look for the first car wash just to get this film off of my car it was so gagging but to think about that 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 smell that was so horrendous and that's 
smell that was so beautiful came from one item, which is the gospel. That's the aroma. And for those of us who are Christians, I won't go into it. There's so many hymns that we sing. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ear. We have so many hymns that extol Jesus and how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is. And so it's hard for us to think, how could somebody think of him as death? And the only explanation is that God has made us new. That we love Jesus as he is. We love Jesus as our suffering sin bearer. We love Jesus as our resurrected Lord. We love Jesus as our, as our abiding presence. It's only until we come to Christ that he becomes that, that beautiful aroma. But you see, Christ comes as a divider of people. And it's no small thing that anyone ever comes to Christ. I want to read three sections for the, from the Westminster Confession in the back of the Trinity Hymnal. If you want to read with me, it's page 854. It's on effectual calling. Where God, by His Spirit, speaks into someone's life and brings them to new life in Christ. And this is what it says. All those whom God has predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away the heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. It is not natural. We cannot logically uh, come into Christ by ourselves. It has to be the Spirit of God. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Others, not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the Spirit, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other, other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the laws of that religion they do profess. And to assess and, and maintain, I'm sorry, to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. We do not logically get ourselves into the kingdom. Anyone who comes into the kingdom comes by the free, saving grace of God, his electing calling. That which was dead, just like the dry bones in Ezekiel 7, is, you know, he was called to prophesy to the bones and they started moving. That's what happens to us in Christ. That's what it means to be a new creature in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian in very plain language. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the gospel smells like rotting flesh to some. They have no taste for Christ in their rebellion in Adam. We often think of fallen people as merely broken, and they are broken. But Adam's act was an act of rebellion, cosmic treason. He was told what to do as a creature, and he disobeyed his creator. 
And God in his mercy was pleased to save some of that fallen mass to be his own. And I, this is a very important thing to think about because I was involved with youth ministry. And it was like, if I just get the message right, they're going to love it. Jesus preached perfect sermons. And people rebelled. You see it in John 9, particularly when he heals the blind man. The Pharisees hated it. They wanted to kill him. Same thing with the Apostle Paul. And I think it's really important for us to take this to heart. It's right there on the pages of Scripture. But we might even get it intellectually. We might be able to get the answer right on the test. But emotionally and everything, we have to work through that. And I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that at all. But there's some applications here. And I'll finish quickly with the last point. First of all, we shouldn't be surprised that people hate Christ. That's the natural inclination of fallen man. Now, we don't usually see it in vehement, hardcore anger. We see it in apathy, usually. Ambivalence. But that's what the natural man has for Christ. Not love for Christ, but ambivalence. We shouldn't be surprised when people hate you as a Christian Jesus in John 16 and 17, I mean, well, 15 and 16, talks about, if they hated me, they'll hate you. He prepared his disciples for the, for the, uh, the, the opposition. They'll hate your holy way of life. They'll mock your holy way of life. But it's pleasing to the Lord. It's your privilege to be holy, to be light in a dark place. And I'll leave it with those, except for one more Application, And this is really important. You may have loved ones who do not know Christ. When my mother passed, I had a wonderful father who did not abandon us. He was a great father. He was a great grandfather in terms of with his grandkids. He never made a profession of faith. And he was found, he had died, he was found dead. He told me at one point, I worship God in my own way. Now, I don't know what happened to him in those last moments. And so I prayed for him while he was alive. I leave it with the Lord. And sometimes we can torture ourselves with those things. You might have sons or daughters or fathers or mothers or whoever. And it's really hard. But I think, I want to encourage you with this. God does not ask us to be God. That's a really hard thing. He does not ask us to be God. David, when he had that child with Bathsheba, went all out in prayer that the child might live, although God said the child would die. And once the child died, he knew that was it. And God doesn't call us to bear those kind of things. We, we pray for those loved ones who are straying or outside of Christ, but we do not have the knowledge God has. I trust that we will rejoice and be glad when we come to heaven by God's grace to see who's there. I never give up on anybody because as Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 says, that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. If I put the bar here, he's up here already. The higher I put it, the more beyond he is. And so we leave it with him. We're just creatures. One of the most difficult things in our, our time is to mind our own business. We have access to so much news. And we, we're kind of encouraged to have an opinion about hundreds of things. It's like, this doesn't even affect my life. My wife, my kids, my church, that affects my life and my job. But it's so easy to be a busybody. 
and to be a know-it-all on things we have no knowledge about. And so the Lord is so kind. Even when Peter, he's told at the end of John's gospel, he says, Jesus says, you're going to die for me. And he sees John, the apostle John. He says, what about him? He says, what is that to you? You follow me. In a sense, he was saying, mind your own business. Follow me. But you know what? That was a mercy. Because what do we need? We need to have our lives more focused on what God wants us to do. It doesn't mean we're not kind to our brothers and sisters and serve them. But we're often minding other people's business and not focused to be faithful. Faithful to my wife. Faithful to my kids. Bringing open the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's what he calls us to. It's a glorious calling. But it's hard to be focused. It's easy to to get outside our, our purview. So that's where the, the two aromas come in. And finally, real quickly, and I apologize for going long, is the matter of the manner uh, of how we're supposed to serve her. I said the method, and that's found in verse uh, 16 to 17. Paul says this, he says, uh, well, it's really, uh, he says, who is sufficient for these things? And in 17 he says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. There were some men who thought they were equal with the Apostle Paul. That is very foolish. We see examples. Miriam and Aaron thought they were the same as Moses. And, and God made it very clear. You're not in the same league. I appointed Moses and I did not appoint you in that same way. And God's calling her from him. Somebody to become a, a pastor better not do it if he's not called by God. And if he is called by God, he better do it. Because that's your ultimate authority. That's the one you're going to give an account to. And so we're always trying to determine what is it you call me to, Lord. And it sounds like what Paul is saying, I don't think it's so much doctrinally that these other people were doing. They were peddlers, like like wares. Maybe for financial gain, not for the the good of the church, not to feed the souls of the saints, as, as Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. So their focus wasn't right. It wasn't holy. It wasn't pure. It was adulterated by love of money, maybe. Or pride. And those things are always... Every, every person has that vulnerability. We, you know, God will eradicate that pride as time goes on. Because ultimately our whole boast is in Christ. And so Paul says, we're not like them. And if you look at... you. It's worth just meditating on what he endured for the sake of Christ. He was really about the Father's, about the Father's work as the, his Lord was. He was really about the Lord's work as he should be. He says, you follow me as I follow Christ. He was a wonderful, consistent example. And so if you have time later today, you can look over these passages, this passage again. I'm going to close here. So the power of ministry... Triumphal procession, the effects of ministry. You'll be the aroma of Christ individually and as a body. And some will hate you and some will love you and come to Christ. And then finally, it's all about the purity of the church. Just like Jack said, <laughs> I don't think Steve's called to be a deacon. What a, what a mercy, you know. He guarded the church from harm by not allowing me to go on with my false doctrines. So... Discipline for the moment is not pleasant, the writer to the Hebrews says, but it's always good. God is always good. His ways are always perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And
Father, there's much to take in from this passage and much to meditate on and consider. We ask that you would be kind to us, that you would grant us repentance where we've been convicted, that you would grant us love of righteousness and and to walk in newness of life, and that we would not despise that, even if it's small and incremental, it's incremental in glorious ways when all the glories of the world will go away. Governmental glories will go away. Your son's glory will be above all glories. There will be no comparison. So we ask that by your grace, we might be pure followers of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Oh, and Father, I do ask, as we come to the offering, Father, it is just a reminder that everything we have is from your hand. You have given us all different uh, talents and gifts and minds. And you've enabled us to find work through these things. And you've given us opportunities. And so in both cases, it's from your hand. And as we bring these things for the upbuilding of your kingdom and for the needs of the saints particularly, it is a wonderful reminder that you've been so kind to us. And you are the author of every good and perfect gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.